I next met with Dr. Brad Call for more discussion on Ash lymphoma papers. And to begin, Dr. Call commented on a major plenary presentation he gave at Ash as principal investigator of a phase three ECOG study, the so-called resort trial, evaluating rituximab in follicular lymphoma. I actually wrote it a little over 10 years ago now, which kind of tells you how long it takes to get studies done in follicular lymphoma. Good thing I was young. So what we were looking at in resort was a couple of things. We knew from historical data that watch and wait, by and large, is considered the standard of care for patients with low tumor burden follicular lymphoma, meaning people that have not too much disease and are asymptomatic. So we started thinking, is this paradigm still appropriate in the rituximab era? So you got to think back to like 2001, 2002, but that's what we were thinking at the time. Is that paradigm still appropriate in the rituximab era? And we already knew at that time that if you administered single agent rituximab to patients in that category, low tumor burden follicular, that the response rates were very high, better than 70%. The drug was very well tolerated, you know, no nausea, no vomiting, no hair loss. And so it had quality of life implications. It could get patients into remission in a non-toxic way. And we thought it might delay the time it takes patients to move on to chemotherapy, which would be a potentially good thing for a patient, especially from a quality of life standpoint. So Since that study was written, we've learned a couple of things. These were studies that have been presented or published in the last couple of years. From Lymphacare, we've learned that about 15 to 20% of the U.S. follicular lymphoma population get single-agent rituximab as their initial therapy. So it is one relatively commonly used first-line strategy. The other thing we learned from the U.K. study presented at ASH last year from Ardeshna et al., is that rituximab used upfront does delay the time it takes patients to move on to chemotherapy. So that's been shown in a randomized clinical trial. So then go back to our study. Well, if you accept the premise that single agent rituximab is a reasonable thing to consider for these patients, the question we really sought to address was what is the best dosing strategy? And we devised a study in which patients would be randomized to one of two different dosing strategies. The way the study was designed is that all eligible patients would receive four weekly doses of single-agent rituximab. And then responders are randomized to one of two different dosing strategies. The control arm would be patients getting rituximab retreatment, which means four weekly doses at progression. So to say that another way is you just take that patient and you watch that patient until they progress. And then when you see progression, you retreat with four weekly doses. And as long as that strategy works, they're responding and the response lasts at least six months, you just keep repeating that strategy indefinitely. So that's the control arm. The experimental arm is maintenance rituximab. And in our study, they received a single dose of maintenance every three months until treatment failure. And so treatment failure in our study is defined as the development of rituximab resistance, inability to complete the planned therapy, or moving on to chemotherapy. Any one of those three things happening is a treatment failure. So that's our study design in a nutshell. The study enrolled 550 patients. I finished enrolling in 2008. 
It took follicular and non-follicular indolent lymphoma. For this presentation, we're just reporting on follicular patients, and that's how the study was designed, just powered on the follicular subset. So we had about 384 follicular patients. Of those, 274 responded to the induction rituximab and were randomized. So we ended up with about 140 patients in each arm to compare against one another. And if you look at the primary endpoint of time to treatment failure, we do not see any meaningful difference between the two treatment regimens. In other words, getting rituximab on an as-needed basis performed just as well as getting rituximab on a maintenance strategy. We looked at an important secondary endpoint, and that was time to chemotherapy. And if you look at that endpoint, the maintenance performed a little better. At three years, 95% of the maintenance patients are chemotherapy-free, and 86% of the retreatment patients are chemotherapy-free. One other thing I wanted to kind of ask you about that you mentioned during the presentation, just to sort of bring it in the mix, was the so-called SAC study. Can you just comment on what that looked at? Because in a way, I'm trying to justify the results of resort versus SAC. Sure. So the SAC study took patients with follicular lymphoma. They had a mix of previously untreated and previously treated patients, and it randomized them to rituximab just four weekly doses or rituximab four weekly doses plus about a year's worth of maintenance therapy. And what that trial showed is that you can improve the response duration and progression-free survival with maintenance. And I'm sure when we look at our data, we're going to see the same thing. So another way to say this, of course maintenance prolongs your response duration and your progression-free survival. You're doing more therapy over a longer period of time. We're accepting that fact. We were trying to ask really a different question, and that is, does the application of maintenance improve other meaningful endpoints like time to chemotherapy? What we're really trying to do is get a sense of what's the best way to control the disease as opposed to just looking at PFS or response duration. Because as you know, in follicular lymphoma, a little bit of progression is not the end of the world for these patients. Once they progress, they can be observed for a long period of time often before they need retreatment. They live a long time after progression. And so while progression-free survival is an important endpoint to judge how well a treatment is working, from a clinical management standpoint, there are other things to look at besides PFS in follicular lymphoma. So we really wanted to look at what if you just give the rituximab intermittently on an as-needed basis? Could you control the disease just as well with that strategy? And what the resort trial shows is that, yes, you can. And one of the really interesting things that came out of this is a really a resource utilization issue. If you look at the number of doses of rituximab needed to control the disease, it took about three and a half more times drug in the maintenance arm to get a very comparable result compared to the retreatment arm. So three to four times more drug, no difference in time to treatment failure, and really just a very slight advantage in time to chemotherapy. So when we were looking at this data, we just didn't feel like using that much more drug justified this very small incremental benefit in time to chemotherapy. 
Another point that you made from the podium, if I remember it correctly, was that both arms, I think you said something like, did better than what's been seen in the past. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, we made the point that if you look at our two groups, our two patient populations, and look at the time to chemotherapy curve, at three and four and five years, very few of our patients have moved on to chemotherapy. So it does look like the strategy does delay the time it takes the patients to move on to chemotherapy. One important thing to recall, though, is that the patients that we're talking about are only the patients who responded to the rituximab induction. In other words, we had a population of patients, we gave them four weekly doses, 70% of them responded, and those are the ones that were randomized. So we sort of called out 30% of the patients right away. They didn't even get randomized. So really what we're talking about is a subgroup of the whole population when we're looking at the time to chemo. So in a way, it's not a completely fair or valid statement. And that's why I made the point, it may delay the time to chemotherapy. It's hard to comment on that in resort because we only analyzed a subgroup, the 70% who responded to the rituximab induction. To get at the question of whether rituximab delays the time to chemo, the study presented last year at ASH from the UK group is a better study to get a handle on that. Our study, that was a secondary endpoint, not a primary endpoint, and is not really the take-home point of our study, I think. What is the take-home point? Other than, you know, in addition to what you're saying in terms of the maintenance not being sort of justifiable? Well, I think that is the main take-home point. If you have a patient with low tumor burden follicular lymphoma, and you decide for whatever reason that you would prefer to start them on single-agent rituximab, that we think this strategy of just giving four weekly doses and then watching that patient without the application of maintenance and then coming back in with four more weekly doses upon progression and just using that strategy intermittently and repetitively is the best strategy for the management of those patients that will result in much less drug being utilized without any measurable compromise in patient outcome. And if someone were to say to you, if I'm going to use R up front, I prefer the SAC regimen, how would you respond to that? There's no question that if you use maintenance, that the remission your patient is now in will last longer. And that's going to be true on our study, too, when we look at the data that way. So if you just want to look at the endpoint of taking the remission you've just achieved and making that last longer, maintenance will accomplish that. And what you really have to ask yourself is, is it worth it or is it warranted? And I think this is a case that just really calls for individualization. You really have to sit down with your patients and explain the pros and the cons of the maintenance approach. The pros are it'll extend your current remission. The cons are it doesn't appear to make you live longer. It doesn't appear to delay your time to next chemotherapy. It will result in you spending more time in the office receiving a treatment when you could be out of the office doing other things. And it is going to cost society more money. Having said that, I don't take a super dogmatic approach with my patients. I really just try to go through this in a thoughtful way with them. And some patients psychologically really struggle with the notion of relapse. 
even after you've explained the disease follicular lymphoma to them and how relapse is not the end of the world and patients can live for many, many years after relapse and we have lots of good treatments that'll work after the disease comes back. And even after you explain all that and they understand their disease well, some patients are so troubled by just the notion that the CAT scan shows that a lymph node that used to be 0.5 centimeters is now 1.5 centimeters that's so psychologically distressing for those patients that I think for those patients, maintenance is justified. It really does help them cope. But other patients are not like that. And I think it's really imperative for us as physicians to educate our patients on the disease and then get a good handle on the patient and their coping style and then figure out what's the best strategy taking all that into consideration. What was the median time that people were on rituximab in the indefinite arm? The range of rituximab doses utilized were a minimum of five doses, a maximum of 31 doses. We give four doses each year. So that means there have been a couple patients who have been on now for over seven years. And the median time is going to be right around three and a half, four years at this juncture. Because I guess if you're mainly thinking about resource utilization, the numbers might look better if instead of using indefinite therapy, you used it for you know eight months or a year and a half or two years. Definitely. The way we designed this study, we were really trying to answer a scientific question of whether maintenance would result in better disease control. And Unfortunately, we didn't see that. I mean, as a treating clinician who takes care of patients, part of me was rooting for the maintenance because I wanted our study to show that giving this treatment in this novel and innovative way improves the disease control, which would be meaningful for patients. Well, we didn't find that. What we found is that you can give the drug sort of the old-fashioned way and get the same good results. So we had to design the study the way we did, which was with the indefinite maintenance. If we'd have designed it with a stop date on the maintenance, we would have had no ability to analyze the study the way we wanted to analyze it. Having said that, you're absolutely right. If there was a stop date on the maintenance, then there would be less total drug used and the the resource utilization issue becomes a lesser issue. What were your thoughts about the way the control arm did? I've had people say to me that they were surprised how well these people did with just four doses of rituximab. Did you have the same feeling or was it pretty much what you thought you'd see? I was a little surprised. The time to chemotherapy with 86% of the patients being chemotherapy free at three years is an outstanding result with just the four weekly doses. But I'll make this point again. Remember that this is a subgroup. So we took the whole population of follicular lymphoma, we gave them the rituximab induction, and then only the responders were randomized. So when we're looking at these really good outcomes, we're looking at the 70% of the whole, which are rituximab sensitive by definition. It's not the whole follicular population we're looking at anymore. We just took the 70%, we took the best actors and looked at them. What do you think the implications are, if any, of this study to the studies looking at duration of our maintenance after our chemo? Well, I think those studies are even more important to do now. I know there are some studies in Europe that are going to look at two versus five years of maintenance after our chemo. I think those are important studies to get done. I mean, you can do some interesting thought experiments at this point 
I mean, think about the Prima trial. In Prima, they took patients with high tumor burden follicular, so same disease, but a slightly different variation, high tumor burden. Everybody got our chemo, and then they're randomized to our maintenance or just observation. What if Prima had been designed like Resort, where instead of observation, you took half the patients and then you just retreated them with rituximab whenever you saw a little bit of progression on the CAT scan and did it that way? What kind of result would you have gotten? Now, you would have needed a different endpoint because progression-free survival is no longer the endpoint of interest. What you'd really be looking at is something like time to next chemotherapy. It's quite possible that with that strategy in Prima, you'd get a tie like we achieved in Resort. The Resort trial sort of calls into question the whole notion of maintenance. And again, I'm not saying maintenance is a bad thing. I hope I'm not giving that impression. I'm just saying that there are other strategies such as retreatment on an as-needed basis that appears to work as well as maintenance, at least in the patient population we studied. So I want to go through a little bit more quickly some of the other related papers that were presented at ASH. Maybe we can just finish out. There are a couple of papers listed on your binder under the resort, first 777 and then 99, both of these looking at the issue of radioimmune therapy. Can you talk a little bit about those two papers? 777 was one of them, right? Yeah, 777 and 99. Okay, so abstract 777 was a study that was done from a group of Italian investigators. And this was a study that looked at a program in which they used rituximab plus FND chemotherapy as an induction. And then all patients received rituximab consolidation. And then there was a randomization to one year of maintenance rituximab versus just observation. And this was in patients with follicular lymphoma that were between the age of 60 and 75. And that study, to my surprise, really showed no real benefit for the maintenance rituximab after the induction therapy. If you look at the progression-free survival curves, there's no statistically significant difference between the patients who receive the R maintenance and those who receive the observation. And that's a result that we haven't seen very often, where maintenance fails to beat observation. And, you know, looking at the study and trying to think why that might be the case, one of the things we've seen in the past, Neil, is that the benefit of maintenance can vary somewhat depending upon what the induction strategy was. And there have been a couple of studies now, some in follicular, some in other diseases like mantle cell, where the benefit of maintenance rituximab compared to observation is not apparent after fludarabine-based induction regimens. Well, also, wasn't the follow-up kind of short? And also, I think they only used four doses of R, didn't they? Right. So there might be other explanations. The authors speculated that perhaps their maintenance strategy wasn't long enough or perhaps the follow-up was too short. Although if you look at the curves, the curves seem to be coming together at the tail, which suggests to me that longer follow-up is not their problem. It is possible that they just didn't do the maintenance for long enough and a longer course of maintenance would have resulted in better separation in those progression-free survival curves. But one thing the authors didn't mention that I wanted to mention is that it is possible that maintenance rituximab after fludarabine-based chemotherapy is not beneficial, and there are other studies that suggest that. Why that might be is not entirely clear, but we do know that fludarabine is a little bit more immunosuppressive 
There are more issues with cytopenias and blood count problems and opportunistic infections. And so this wouldn't be the first time that maintenance didn't pan out after fludarabine-based regimen. We saw this in ECOG study 1496 many years ago. In mantle cell lymphoma, the European Mantle Cell Consortium presented results at the ASH meeting this year looking at maintenance rituximab after two different inductions, and the maintenance was very beneficial after our CHOP, but was not beneficial after a regimen of FCR. So there's a few examples out there where maintenance has not been as beneficial after fludarabine-based regimens, and that may be what we're seeing here. How about this paper from MD Anderson, Nathan Fowler, a phase two study looking at RF&D followed by RAI followed by R-maintenance? So this was a phase two study that was done at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. They took patients who they felt had high risk disease based on their flippy scores. So the patients had to have a flippy score of three, four, or five. And they put them through this relatively intense program of the RF and D regimen, followed a couple of months later by a single dose of Y90 ibrutumumab tuxetan radioimmunotherapy. And then patients were then to receive maintenance rituximab for a year. And This trial shows, I think, fairly promising results for this so-called high-risk group. They had high response rates to the regimen, and the progression-free survival at five years is 74%, which is really quite good for this group of patients. The toxicity profile that they see is a little bit concerning, a lot of cytopenias, some serious infections, and three cases of myelodysplastic syndrome amongst the 49 patients who were enrolled. So And the authors do point that out in their conclusions that this may be kind of a high-risk, high-reward strategy with good efficacy results, but some risk to the patients in terms of toxicities. Now, when you think about this one, I think you really have to put it in context of the SWOG study that was reported at the ASH meeting. And this was presented by Ali Press. This was a large randomized phase three study that they did, and this has been running kind of at the same time the resort trial has been running over the past 10 years, so I've been very aware of this study. This study wasn't for just high tumor burden or just low tumor burden follicular. This took all comers. That's an important thing to remember. Most of the European studies that look at like an R chemo induction, like Prima, for example, those studies are restricted to high tumor burden. So that's a slightly different patient population, a somewhat worse patient population than, say, is going to be on the SWOG study. So you do have to be careful when you try to compare the SWOG results against other groups' results. But if you just keep your eyes on the results within this study, there are some interesting things to learn. So patients who enrolled in this study are randomized to one of two strategies. They either receive rituximab CHOP chemotherapy, as is commonly utilized, or they receive CHOP chemotherapy, no rituximab in the induction, followed by a single dose of I-31 tocitumumab. And that was based upon a phase two study that SWOG had done, which showed really outstanding results for this strategy of CHOP followed by the I-31 tocitumumab. So this is a randomized trial, big phase three study, 550 patients. Half the patients get the R-CHOP, half the patients get the CHOP followed by the tocitumumab. And what the trial shows is really there's no difference in the two outcomes. They achieved essentially equivalent results for progression-free survival and essentially equivalent results for overall survival. And toxicities were also comparable. There was a little more thrombocytopenia in the patients who received the radioimmunotherapy. There was a few more cases of AML-MDS in the patients who received the radioimmunotherapy, so perhaps slightly more toxicity there. But overall, 
Both strategies produced excellent, outstanding results. And the study sort of raises the question of how much does the radioimmunotherapy add after you've finished your induction therapy? Now, there could be several critiques of this trial. For example, maybe the results in the experimental arm would have been better had they used an RCHOP induction, had they included the rituximab. Maybe the results would be better yet if there were maintenance strategies attached to the different regimens. And again, this is a study that was designed 10 years ago, and you know they went with what they knew at the time. This was before Prima was published, and we didn't know as much then as we do now. But I think the take-home message from this study is that you know, if you were going to pick between one of these two strategies, they look equivalent. I think most people would pick RCHOP. They're used to it. They're used to combining the rituximab in the induction. There's a little bit of a, oh, I guess I'll call it a hassle factor with giving the radioimmunotherapy. So I think most people are just more comfortable using RCHOP as their induction. And whether radioimmunotherapy after an RCHOP induction will provide additional benefit, we can't say because that question wasn't addressed in this particular study. Are there any ongoing trials or planned trials that look at some of these other alternatives, particularly this idea of R-chemo, R-CHOP, followed by RAI, followed by R-maintenance? Yes, SWAG has designed a follow-up study to the study that was presented at ASH, and that's protocol S0801, and that is a trial which You can sort of think of it as the kitchen sink approach, but they're trying all of it. This is a single-arm phase 2 trial, but patients will receive RCHOP as an induction strategy. They'll receive radioimmunotherapy as a consolidation strategy, and then they will receive maintenance rituximab as a maintenance strategy. And I actually don't know how long the maintenance is given in that trial. I think it's for two years. What do you think about that study? Do you think it's worthwhile doing? Do you think there should be a phase 3? Yeah, I think it's definitely worth doing the phase two study that they've initiated in SWAG. And because they've taken a very logical and systematic approach to their trials, they'll be able to plot their progression-free survival curves and their overall survival curves from this new study. And they'll be able to compare those against their historical controls from the study that Ali Press presented and really get, I think, a good go-no-go signal as to whether a phase three trial is warranted you know, using this approach of putting it all in there, the RCHOP induction, the radioimmunotherapy consolidation, and the rituximab maintenance. The reality is nowadays in follicular to do a frontline trial, the outcomes are getting to be so good with RCHOP induction and R maintenance, you probably are going to need a study of, a phase three study is probably going to need a thousand patients to be able to show differences. And so it's a big commitment. So you really have to make sure that your phase three initiative is well-founded and has good rationale and good phase two data before you make such a gigantic commitment. How about your take on paper 877, looking at the issue of PET scanning and follicular lymphoma? Yeah, I thought abstract 877 from the Gila Golems group was a very interesting trial, looking at the role of interim PET and end-of-treatment PET in frontline follicular lymphoma management This was a straight phase two study that enrolled about 120 patients, and all the patients received RCHOP. There's no maintenance, and they simply did a pre-treatment PET scan. They did a PET scan after the fourth cycle, and they did a PET scan at the end of treatment, and then they just saw 
how well the PET scan was predictive of outcome. And what they saw was that at the interim PET, after four cycles, 76% of the patients are PET negative, which means 24% are still PET positive. And the results weren't a lot different after the final PET, where 78% of the patients are PET negative, 22% remain PET positive. So the question then is, does this mean anything or does this predict anything? And the fact is it did. If you look at the two-year progression-free survival rates, the end of treatment PET was particularly predictive. For example, in the patients who are PET negative, 87% are progression-free at two years, whereas the patients who remain PET positive at the end of treatment, only 51% of patients are progression-free at two years. So a huge separation in the curves predicting progression events based on the end of treatment PET. And actually, they see a slight overall survival difference, too, based on the end of treatment PET. People who are PET negative, 100% alive at two years. People who had PET positivity at the end of treatment, 88% alive. So this trial doesn't tell you what to do with the people who remain PET positive at the end of treatment, but it does tell you they are not going to do as well. Half of them will relapse in the next two years, and 12% of them will die. So I think this trial sets them up to do subsequent trials where you could take the patients who are PET positive and try something innovative. You could do maintenance rituximab. You could do radioimmunotherapy consolidation. You could do autologous stem cell transplant as a consolidation step. There are a variety of things that could be attempted with this small but significant group of patients who are PET positive at the end of treatment to see if you could alter the natural history and improve their outcomes. So I want to kind of just zip through a handful of other papers fairly quickly. I'm curious about your take. There were two papers, 269 and 270, looking at obinutuzumab, GA101, a little bit easier to say. Can you talk about what was seen there and what you think it means? So GA101 is a new anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. There are a variety of new anti-CD20s. The hope is that they will perform better than rituximab performs. And the reality is this is a high bar because rituximab has been, you know, the biggest breakthrough in B-cell lymphoma treatment in our lifetimes. And whether any of these drugs will turn out to be difference makers, we don't know yet. This drug, GA101, has some differences from rituximab. It is a little better at inducing antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity, or ADCC, and it's a little bit better at direct cell killing than rituximab is, at least in cell lines it is. And so obviously there's a lot of interest to get this drug into the clinic and see if it will perform better than rituximab. So the trial that was presented at ASH by Lori Sen and co-investigators was a randomized phase two study that compared GA101 head-to-head against rituximab. These are in patients with relapsed follicular and indolent lymphoma, which instantly creates a little bit of a problem because the patient populations get so heterogeneous when you get into the relapse refractory setting. You can have wide swings in the amount of prior treatments and how resistant patients are. So fairly heterogeneous group of patients when you get into relapse refractory follicular, but nonetheless, this randomized phase two trial just compared four weekly doses of GA101 against four weekly doses of rituximab. There was a brief maintenance strategy in each arm as well, where patients would receive a single dose every two months for up to two years. 
And the primary endpoint was just to look at the overall response rates. And when the overall response rates were looked by an independent review panel, there was a difference in favor of GA101. So the objective response rate for GA101 was 43% versus 28% for rituximab. So there was a signal in this study that the GA101 might be performing somewhat better than rituximab in a head-to-head trial. Now at the meeting, they did show progression-free survival curves. And unfortunately, we're not seeing any difference in the progression-free survival. So the study is not definitive, but it provides enough data, I think, that makes the company feel like they should move forward with GA101 development. And there are a variety of trials now which are in development or already open for enrollment, which are comparing GA101 against rituximab head-to-head. For example, there's a very large frontline trial in follicular lymphoma that'll compare RCHOP against GCHOP. And there's a very large trial in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma being done all over the world that will compare RCHOP against GCHOP. And so the trials that need to be done to see if GA101 is really better than rituximab are being done as we speak. They're very early. It'll be several years before we have any of these answers, but the trials are moving forward. Any comment about 270, the phase one study? Yeah, so 270 was just the pilot studies which combined GA101 with chemotherapy. And the bottom line from these trials is it showed that you can combine GA101 with CHOP chemotherapy. It's safe. You don't have to dilute your chemotherapy doses. And I think it just gave investigators confidence that they could go ahead and launch the big phase three studies that I just mentioned of RCHOP versus GCHOP once you establish that you can give J101 safely in combination with chemotherapy. So I wanted to ask you about a few papers presented at ASH on CLL beginning with 980. Abstract 980 was a final analysis of a phase two study from the group at MD Anderson. This was a study of the combination of lenalidomide and rituximab in patients with relapsed refractory CLL. This was a phase two study that enrolled 59 patients and the patients would start out on uh, 28-day cycles of lenalidomide. They would give them 10 milligrams daily, and then they would receive rituximab in the usual dose and schedule. They would receive four weekly doses, and then they would go on and receive a single dose once a month for up to a year. And then they had some dose modifications built in for lenalidomide in case there were problems with toxicities or issues like that. And the rationale for this combination is that lenalidomide appears to have interesting effects on the immune system. It seems to increase NK cell numbers and NK cell activation. And some of the way rituximab appears to kill cells, it needs NK cell mediated killing. And so the thought is that by giving lenalidomide, you can get the immune system kind of revved up and primed. And then when you come in with your rituximab, you're going to get more bang for your buck. So there's good preclinical data for this combination. There's a good rationale for this combination. And that's why you're seeing, frankly, a whole lot of studies trying to take advantage of this potential synergy. So in the study from MD Anderson, the combination of lenalidomide and rituximab in this relapsed CLL population produced an overall response rate of 66%, which is really outstanding, and a median time to treatment failure of 24 months, which again is, for this patient population, is a very outstanding result, certainly far better than you would have expected with either agent alone where the response rates tend to run about half of that and the response duration is about half of that. So I think this is very good evidence that this is a very potent and synergistic combination. 
and a combination that lots of groups and lots of investigators are trying to exploit right now. What specifically is being looked at or talked about in terms of large trials? Well, I can tell you that in the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group, we have two studies right now, one in follicular lymphoma and one in mantle cell lymphoma. The mantle cell study is actually an intergroup study with all the cooperative groups participating. And after bendamustine rituximab-based induction, and in the induction there's randomization to include bortezomib or not, patients would then be randomized to receive just plain old rituximab maintenance or rituximab plus lenalidomide maintenance. So we're looking at this combination of rituximab plus lenalidomide as a remission maintenance strategy or a post-remission strategy in mantle cell lymphoma. And then in ECOG, we're also looking at it in follicular lymphoma as part of a frontline strategy. So after a bendamustine rituximab induction, with or without bortezomib, patients are again randomized to just rituximab maintenance therapy or rituximab plus lenalidomide as a maintenance strategy. So we're very interested in seeing if this rituximab-lenalidomide combination can beat rituximab head-to-head in randomized clinical trials. It's going to need to be more efficacious, and then obviously the toxicity is going to be very important to look at because there's no doubt that lenalidomide adds some toxicity. And so if the efficacy benefit is very modest, it may not be worth the toxicity price there is to pay. However, if the efficacy benefit is very large, then obviously paying a little bit in terms of toxicity becomes a good trade-off for patients. So those studies are open, underway, and accruing as we speak. As data sets like Resort come out with good long-term disease control with relatively non-toxic biologic treatments like rituximab, I wonder if it's going to lead people maybe away from watch and wait. Well, I can say it certainly is getting harder and harder to watch and wait with these promising results for using things like single-agent rituximab or with these new drugs coming out like lenalidomide that are showing such good activity, especially in combination. However, for these drugs or these combinations to really replace watch and wait, they are going to have to beat it in some meaningful way, and those trials just haven't been done yet. So for me personally, and I talk to lots of my colleagues about this, most of us will still start out on a watch and wait strategy when we have a low tumor burden follicular lymphoma patient walk in the door. What I might do, you know, based on resort, is the following. I separate the patients by age. And if I have somebody who comes in the door with low tumor burden follicular lymphoma, let's say they're over the age of 70, and they have low tumor burden follicular, which means they're asymptomatic, I'll start watching them, and I'll watch them closely, And if I see the disease starting to progress, I won't wait anymore until they get to be frankly high tumor burden and then I have to come in with our chemo because I know people in their 70s don't tolerate the chemotherapy as well. So I won't let the disease advance as far. I'll come in earlier when they're still low tumor burden. They're progressing, but they're still low tumor burden and I'll give them single agent rituximab. And based on resort, If the rituximab works for them in the induction, I think there's good evidence that you can just use this strategy of retreatment and you have a reasonable chance of that patient avoiding chemotherapy in their lifetime, which is a good goal. Now, the story is different for younger patients. You know, if you have a 50-year-old who comes in with low tumor burden follicular lymphoma, I think the expectation of avoiding chemotherapy in their lifetime 
is not as realistic. And so if I have a young patient walk in the door, I will right now, based on current evidence, I'll just start watching them, observe them until the disease gets to be a high tumor burden stage. And then I will start them on our chemotherapy, usually our CHOP or our bendamustine. And then when they finish that treatment, I will talk to them about maintenance rituximab and we'll have that conversation about the pros and the cons and try to make a decision together. In my experience, most patients will opt for maintenance rituximab because they feel like I just have gone through six months of therapy. I'm in remission. I'd like to maintain this remission if possible. And so probably six or seven out of 10 of the patients I have this conversation with will opt for the maintenance. But that means three or four will say, I'll pass on the maintenance. We'll put the rituximab in our back pocket and we'll pull it out later when we need it. And that's a perfectly fine strategy as well. So those are my two current approaches to managing follicular lymphoma that's low tumor burden, at least in 2012. Just a couple words about a couple other presentations. One, 983, Susan O'Brien's presentation of the BTK inhibitor PCI 32765. So this drug, PCI 32765, which is a Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor, is a drug that I'm very excited about. This drug targets this kinase, the BTK enzyme, It appears as though CLL, mantle cell, and certain other B-cell lymphomas require sort of a tonic signaling through the B-cell receptor to maintain their survival. And this small molecule, which is administered orally, by the way, disrupts signaling through the B-cell receptor and seems to cause cell death. So this drug is an oral, it's an irreversible inhibitor of BTK. And this group of investigators led by Susan O'Brien and John Bird presented these results at the ASH meeting of a fairly large phase two study done in relapsed refractory CLL. And the trial is a little complicated because it had two different dose levels. Half the patients were getting 420 milligrams, half were getting 840, but the drug was just out of phase one, so they're still trying to sort out the best dose and schedule. But suffice to say that whether the patients took the high dose or the low dose, the results, the objective response rates were extremely good with objective responses in the range of 70%. And if you look at the curves with progression-free survival at 12 months, the vast majority of these patients are holding their remissions. Now the follow-up is short, and so obviously more time is needed, but I can tell you from personal experience with this drug that it works. I've seen very impressive responses in relapsed refractory mantle cell. One of the really interesting things is this drug has that recompartmentalization of the tumor phenomenon, whereas the lymph nodes shrink away, the cells seem to spill into the blood. So you'll see the patient's peripheral blood lymphocyte count increasing over the next couple of months after they start on the drug. But that does not represent disease progression because while this is happening, the spleen is getting smaller the lymph nodes are getting smaller, the patients are feeling better, their hemoglobin is improving, their platelet count is improving, and these are some of the most active drugs in relapsed refractory CLL and mantle cell lymphoma that any of us have ever seen, and they are extremely well tolerated. There are some issues with diarrhea that's pretty mild and manageable for most patients. Patients reporting a little bit of fatigue, We've seen some issues with mouth sores, some issues with peripheral edema. So they're not completely benign drugs, but compared to cytotoxic chemotherapy or a lot of the other things that we can offer these patients, they're extremely well tolerated. And I'm incredibly excited about 
what this class of drugs can do in these diseases, very similar to what we saw last year with drugs that targeted PI3 kinase, like the Cal-101 agent. There's another drug that's being tested now that targets the splenic tyrosine kinase, a so-called SICK inhibitor. That drug's called fostamatinib. That drug looks very active in these diseases, and they all target the pathways right inside where the B-cell receptor signaling occurs. So this is a dynamite target for these diseases, and drugs hitting key enzymes in this pathway look fabulous. These drugs are going to make a difference for these patients. It's just a matter of you know getting the trials done and getting the registration studies done and getting them to FDA approval. But I have no doubt that several of these drugs are going to make it to market and make a big impact for patients. Last thing I want to ask you about, we were talking before about rituximab maintenance and follicular lymphoma. What about the issue of rituximab maintenance in CLL? There's a report from the Spanish group 293 looking at this. So this abstract 293 looked at the role of maintenance rituximab in CLL. And as you know, maintenance rituximab is less well studied in CLL and hasn't really been shown to have the same beneficial role like it's been shown to have in follicular lymphoma and now mantle cell lymphoma. And this study gives you a little glimpse into that from this group of Spanish investigators. This was a single-arm phase two study in which patients received a regimen of rituximab FCM induction and then followed by maintenance rituximab. And then they took this result and compared it against a historical group that had just received FCM therapy. And what they showed was their new regimen of RFCM followed by R certainly looks better than FCM did for probability of conversion from MRD negative minimal residual disease to a minimal residual disease negative state. It looks better for overall response rate for progression-free survival. Because of the ways that the study was designed and because it's a relatively small phase two study, you really can't tell whether it's the maintenance rituximab that's making all the difference or whether it was the inclusion of rituximab in the induction. So we just don't know yet, Neil, whether there's a solid place for maintenance rituximab in frontline CLL management yet. Those trials that will answer that question are ongoing around the world, and hopefully we'll have those answers in the next year or two.